Well, we've been working our way through the letter of 1 Peter, and last week we considered Peter's instruction to wives to submit to their own husbands. And we saw that the submission of a Christian wife to her husband is rooted in a fearless hope in God. Okay, she's submitting to Christ. That is the reason that she submits to her husband, is that Jesus tells her so. She has a hope in God. She's a child of Sarah who is fearless. And she displays that submission in a respectful and pure conduct, a pure way of life. And she cultivates that submission by a gentle and a quiet spirit. And this results in a kind of beauty that God sees, a kind of beauty that is precious and valuable in God's sight. And now this morning, we're continuing with that same passage and looking at Peter's instruction to Christian husbands, specifically how they're to live with their wives, how they're to dwell with their wives. As I pointed out last week, feminism has attempted to undermine God's design for marriage and the household. It denigrates the glory of a wife submitting to her husband and fulfilling her role as his helper, as a keeper of the home, uh, her calling to love her husband and her children. But feminism also presents men as oppressive uh, just by virtue of their call to lead their households as the head of the wife. In fact, we have seen in recent years an increasing hostility towards men, a kind of rhetoric towards against all things masculine. Uh, many traits that we would say are our biblical notions of masculinity have been branded as toxic masculinity by our culture. Um, often the secular media paints Christian and biblical ideas about masculinity as the worst offenders of this toxic masculinity. Critics claim that conservative Protestant gender ideology, okay, that is biblical teaching, on authority and submission that we heard read from Ephesians 5 and from 1 Peter 3, that this kind of teaching clearly leads to emotional and physical abuse. That headship theory is all about inequality and hierarchy and inequality in any sense is automatically going to lead to abuse. Nancy Piercy in a recent Touchstone article said that the trouble with these kind of negative accusations is that they do not take into account the data from the social sciences. In recent decades, psychologists and social, uh, sociologists have been conducting research on Christian couples. And surprisingly, they have found that evangelical family men, okay, Nancy Piercy means by that theologically conservative family men, who attend church regularly are the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers according to the data. She goes on to say that the data shows that the wives of evangelical family men are the most likely to say that their husbands express affection and understanding. They rank the highest in terms of saying they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. These couples are less likely to divorce, and they have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in the United States. In short, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. 
Now, whatever you make of statistical data, uh, this has been true of my own personal experience as well. Being in many different churches in different states in the U.S., uh, this data lines up with what I have seen firsthand, and I would imagine this data rings true for you as well. Uh, but the key distinguishing factor here in the data is the commitment to the Lord and to His church. Okay, these researchers have divided data on evangelical men. Okay, that's the broad bucket. They've divided these into two groups. On the one hand, you have evangelical men who attend church regularly and are committed to the church. And on the other hand, you have evangelical men who attend church infrequently or not at all, what we would call nominal evangelical Christians. And the data found that the nominal evangelical men reported the highest rate of domestic violence. While the lowest rate were, were reported among church-going evangelicals, the highest were reported among nominal evangelicals. Piercy speculates this. She says, it seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear the language of headship and submission, but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms, like skimming the news headlines without reading the actual stories. I think the key to understanding the meaning of those terms, rightly, is submission to King Jesus. All of us are under his authority and are called to fulfill our duties the way that Jesus defines them. At the heart of our faith is a loving husband who laid down his life for the sake of his bride. Jesus is the model husband that scripture holds up as our example, as we just heard read in Ephesians 5. He's the head of his wife, the church. He has authority over her, and he takes responsibility for her, and he leads her. For this reason, she's called to submit to him. But he rules over her in a loving and affectionate way. He seeks his bride's good. He lays down his life for her and serves her so that she might be presented spotless and mature. He doesn't lead her in a self-seeking or selfish way, merely looking out for his own interests. Rather, he nourishes her, he cherishes her, provides for her, and protects her for her own well-being. Since wives are called to submit to their own husbands, it should be obvious that this necessarily entails the idea that husbands are called to rule and to lead their households. And there are two ditches that a husband uh, can fall into with respect to this role. On the one hand is to be a harsh and domineering leader, abusing his authority. And the other is for him to be a passive leader, abdicating that authority. While our culture speaks a lot about abuse uh, and even sees male authority in the home as inherently abusive, I think the far more widespread problem in many Christian households is men who abdicate their authority. Men who fail to lead and fail to take responsibility for their wives and children. Peter's instruction here in 1 Peter 3 helps us to avoid both of these errors. Abuse on the one hand and abdication on the other. Now, Jesus' leadership is often characterized as one of servant leadership. As we heard in our gospel lesson today, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be 
your servant. This is certainly the husband's call as the leader of the home. But often this teaching, servant leadership, gets hijacked and distorted. Uh, servant leadership is very popular in the corporate world. It's very popular in a lot of non-Christian contexts. But as servant leadership gets co-opted, uh, it's often misapplied and begins to negate any actual rulership, any actual authority. Uh, it's often turned into all servant and no leader at all. Instead, the servant leader becomes a kind of yes man to those whom he is leading. They apply this to marriage. The husband, as a servant leader on this distorted model, is a yes man to his wife. He only leads her where she is already headed. Uh, he never asks her to do anything that she wasn't planning to do already. He looks to her to decide everything. He has no vision of his own for his family. He's all servant and no leader at all. Now, obviously, the point is not for the husband to be as disagreeable as possible, uh, to oppose his wife on every possible issue so that he's not that kind of servant leader. The point is that the husband is called to lead. He's called to rule. And leadership is not just doing whatever those who follow you already want to do. To give one example of this, even in Jesus' own teaching on servant leadership, uh, he goes to wash Simon Peter's feet. And initially, Peter refuses. He resists Jesus and says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, Jesus, of course, did not say, okay, Simon, whatever you think is best, let's go that route. No, as, as Peter's master, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share it with me. Peter then follows Jesus' lead, saying, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head too. Jesus did not abandon his lordship or his authority when he served his disciples. Uh, he knew what was best for his disciples, and he served in that way. In that same passage in John 13, Jesus affirms, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And yet he serves them, he lays his life down by seeking their good. Jesus' model of servant leadership did not obliterate his lordship or rule. Jesus leads for the sake and the good of his people, and he does so in a sacrificial way. And this is the pattern that Peter affirms in our text this morning. I want us to look at four instructions that Peter gives to Christian husbands who are leading their wives and their households. The first is that husbands are to live with their wives according to knowledge. Secondly, to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. Third, to show honor to their wives as joint heirs. And lastly, to do all of this so that their prayers will not be hindered. Okay, number one, husbands are to live with their wives according to knowledge. Most of your Bibles will say something like, live with your wives in an understanding way. But the, the Greek is literally according to knowledge. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Okay, what kind of knowledge does Peter have in mind here for husbands? Uh, it's a bit open-ended. Uh, it's kind of ambiguous what type of knowledge he's referring to. Throughout the letter, knowledge and fear of God uh, are paired together in a number of places. Uh, we see in chapter 1 that Peter tells them to conduct themselves in the fear of the Lord, knowing 
that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay, in the same context, he talks about their former ignorance before they had this knowledge. Uh, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So knowledge and fear of God are closely associated there in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the instruction to slaves, uh, they're they're told to be mindful of God, to have this kind of knowledge of God as they're submitting to their masters, as they're walking in the fear of God. And as we saw last week, wives are to hope in God as they submit to the Lord in fear and to their husbands. Okay, so there's a kind of knowledge and fear of God that go hand in hand in these numerous contact, uh, these numerous passages in the letter. Perhaps Peter here, again, has in mind a knowledge of God. Live with your wives according to a knowledge of God. They should maintain a mindfulness of God over them. Okay? All Christians are called to submit to Jesus, and even as they're leading their wives, husbands should walk in the fear of God and the knowledge of his ways. This means that husbands are to remember the Lord so as not to abuse or to abdicate their authority. The Lord has given husbands this authority and they are accountable to him for how they exercise it. Uh, They're not to lord it over their wives using their authority for selfish reasons. And likewise, husbands are not to abdicate their authority either. Uh, Failing to lead, being lazy in the calling that the Lord has given them. They should dwell with their wives, being mindful of the Lord. Another way to look at this knowledge, and I think both of these fit with the context here, is to see it as a consideration of the wife. Okay? There's a knowledge of God as he's seeking to obey his commands, and there's a knowledge about his wife that he needs to have. Okay? She's the weaker vessel. She's a co-heir. The referent there is to the wife. Uh, This is behind the translation that many versions use. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That according to knowledge is referring to your wife. Be considerate of your wife as you lead her. This certainly fits with the context as well. Uh, Both of these realities that Peter points out are descriptions of her. It makes sense that the husband should lead with a knowledge and understanding of his own wife. And we'll look at uh, weaker vessel and co-heir here in a moment. But in order to have this kind of knowledge, a husband needs to study his wife. He needs to get to know her. He needs to know things about her. He needs to know her well if he is going to lead her well. The Lord has given you, husbands, your wife, as your helper, as your companion, And you need to know how to best love her and cherish her. In other words, husbands, you should be pursuing a PhD in your wife. You need to understand her in such a way that you can properly lead her and care for her in the way the Lord has called you to. Now, some of you might be thinking, but women are complicated. And I don't disagree. Women are complicated for us men. Uh, But you don't need to understand all women. Peter's not saying men understand all women. No, he's he's saying you only need to understand your own wife. You need to get to know your own wife so that you can be faithful to lead her. So husbands, study your wives. Husbands should be mindful of the Lord as they lead their homes, and they should consider their wives as they dwell with them. 
Live with your wives according to knowledge. Secondly, husbands are to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. To our modern ears, this kind of language sounds derogatory or demeaning. We've been catechized again by the feminists to believe in sameness or to discourage any talk of differences between male and female. If we say that a woman is weaker or subordinate to a man in any respect at all, we are accused of misogyny. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not degrading or disparaging women by calling them the weaker vessel. Quite the opposite. He is encouraging husbands to honor their wives as the weaker vessel, to treat them in a certain way because of their God-given differences and roles. Because our culture wants men and women to be seen as interchangeable, they've set men and women in competition with one another. And this is not how it should be. We are on the same team with our wives. If someone were to claim that a hammer is better than an ornate piece of fine china, we would have to clarify, better for what? Both of these things have value and are better in certain contexts than in others. Fine dinnerware is not going to do me much good on the construction site, and the hammer is not going to be very useful entertaining special dinner guests. Weaker and stronger are relative terms that require context. In what sense is the woman a weaker vessel? I think Peter has in mind at least two senses here, uh, in physical strength and in social position. And let's consider both of these in turn. I think it's pretty obvious to most uh, people who aren't drinking the cultural Kool-Aid that men are generally speaking stronger than women. Men are, are generally physically stronger than women. Again, feminism has been pushing the lie that men and women are interchangeable and should be able to do all the same things. The disaster of allowing men to compete in women's sports under the guise of transgender inclusivity makes this point pretty obvious. In most athletic contests, men are going to dominate women because of their superior physical strength. We can say in the Bible that beauty, said this last week, is a trait primarily associated with women, while strength is a trait that's primarily associated with men. I'm not saying there's never an example of overlap. David's eyes are described as beautiful. Uh, Even the Lord, who's typically described in masculine terms, Uh, is described as beautiful. Likewise, you see strength in the Proverbs 31 woman. She dresses herself in strength. She makes her arms strong. The point is not that these are exclusively feminine or masculine categories, but that scripture emphasizes these traits primarily in feminine and masculine context because of our creational design. There's a reason that Peter didn't find it necessary to admonish men about obsessing over their external beauty. Okay, he, he spoke to the women about that, not to the men. Likewise, there's a reason that Isaiah 19 taunts the fighting men of Egypt this way. It says, They will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes them over. It's not because being a woman is shameful. Rather, it's because a man acting like a woman in battle is shameful. Women were not made for combat. Proverbs 20 says, the glory of young men is their strength. In 1 Kings 2, David charges Solomon to be strong and show yourself a man. 
In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul admonishes the church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. God made men to be strong and in particular to use their strength for the good of their people. In 1 Chronicles 19, Joab tells his men on the brink of battle, be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Okay, in Numbers 32, the tribes of Gad and Reuben use their strength to build cities for their little ones. And they have their wives and little ones stay in these cities while they cross over to go into battle. Men are to use their strength to protect and provide for the vulnerable. They're to use their strength for the good of their people. Peter tells husbands, show honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. One of the primary ways that husbands do this is by being strong for their families. Husbands are called to protect their wives from physical and spiritual harm. As the leader of the home, the Lord has given you, husbands, the responsibility of guarding what is valuable and precious. That is how you show her honor. This also means guarding what kinds of influences that you allow in your home. Husbands, you are responsible to protect your people from both spiritual and physical dangers. Husbands are also called to provide for their wives in physical and spiritual ways as well. Paul says, if a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Husbands should also see that their family is fed with the word regularly and that their families do not forsake the assembling together with the church. The husband honors his wife as the weaker vessel by fulfilling his role as provider and protector. Another sense in which the woman is the weaker vessel is in terms of her social position. The husband is in authority over the wife, which means that she's the more vulnerable party here. Uh, he is to show honor to her in her role by exercising his authority lovingly. Uh, that's, again, why he should consider his wife. He should uh, live with her according to knowledge. Husbands must never use their strength or their authority to bully or demean their wives. Rather, they must use their strength to protect and provide for them. Peter's warning husbands here not to be severe with their wives, but to stand up for them, to treat them as precious and valuable as God sees them as daughters of Sarah. We see this kind of honoring enshrined in traditional manners that gentlemen display towards women. They, these, these manners that many of us know, standing for a lady when she enters the room, opening the car door for her, uh, letting women go first in a line, the man walking on the side of the street or side of the sidewalk where the street is to put himself between her and danger. Um, all of these kind of traditional manners are exhibiting this kind of honor. They're all developed to show that the woman is valuable and to be protected. Uh, she's to be honored as the weaker vessel. To look at this point another way, husbands must also not put their wives in the position of leader. Okay, another way that they can fail to honor her as the weaker vessel is putting her in the position of head. This is the abdication ditch. A husband fails to honor his wife as the weaker vessel when he fails to lead her in the way that he's called. This is the equivalent of hearing a noise down in the basement in the middle of the night and looking over at your wife and saying, you go check it out. 
This is your job, husbands, to go and put yourself between danger and her. You're to step in between. Uh, There are also areas where the husband has weaknesses that need to be complemented by his wife's strength. So while Peter says that the woman is the weaker vessel, again, in context, it's relative to strength and to his position. But there are areas where, obviously, husbands, we know we are weaker, right? Uh, The obvious example would be bearing children and nurturing them. Uh, Contrary to popular opinions today, men cannot get pregnant or nurse children. It's sad that that has to be said, but I've said it. Uh, This is a unique glory that the Lord has given to women. Wives, by God's design, are particularly suited for nurturing children and managing the domestic sphere. That's why there's a whole lot of New Testament teaching on that. She's strong in this domain where the, woman, where the man is weak. And because of these differences, husbands should not view headship or leadership as micromanaging their wives. But she has particular gifts. She has particular strengths that the Lord has given to help you in your household. And while you're called to provide vision, you're called to provide direction and make sure she has everything that she needs to fulfill her role, this does not mean that you need to dictate every little detail. Give her freedom in her domain to fulfill her call. You're on the same team. You each have unique gifts. Honor her as your glory. Third, the husband is to show the wife honor because she is a joint heir of the grace of life, Peter says. In chapter 1, Peter's already spoken of the inheritance. There's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, And it's kept in heaven for those who have been born again to a living hope. Peter's talking about the eternal inheritance of life forever with the Lord. The inheritance belongs to all who are in Christ, whether male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. The wife's calling to submit to her husband in no way makes her spiritually inferior to the husband. She's a daughter of the king. She's a fellow image bearer, we saw last week, but she's a daughter of the king. She belongs to Christ. She has the same eschatological destiny and promises that the husband does. Peter's saying, therefore, treat her like that. Treat her like a daughter of the king. Show her honor because of this. Remember that she is your sister in Christ. The wife is a co-worker and fellow companion in the, the grace of life. She has equal access to the father. She does not need to go through her husband to access the Lord. While husbands are the head of the home and have responsibility for their wives' spiritual maturity, that doesn't mean that husbands become a kind of mediator uh, between their families and God. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Show honor to your wife as a daughter of the king and an heir of the world to come. Last point. Husbands are to show honor to their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hey, what does Peter have in mind here? Husbands, there's a connection between how you treat your wife or mistreat her and the effectiveness of your prayers. Husbands who mistreat their wives or who fail to lovingly lead them should not expect God to listen to them. Peter says in chapter 4, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's a connection between our Christian walk in general and our prayers and their effectiveness. 
when we're not self-controlled or sober-minded, our prayers are hindered. In chapter 5, Peter says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we're walking in sin, we are walking in prideful resistance to God. God will oppose us unless we repent. In verse verse 12 here, just a few verses down of chapter 3, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, which we sang this morning. Psalm 34 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Lord hears the prayers of those who walk in his ways, those who walk in humble obedience before him. But he opposes the prayers of those who pridefully reject his commands. James 5 says that the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you're walking in unrighteousness towards your wife, do not expect your prayers to be answered. Instead, do what the first part of James 5.16 says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Husbands who are walking in unrepentant sin against their wives should not expect God to hear their prayers. The Lord takes care of his daughters, and he will oppose you if you are not treating them the way he has called you to. Jesus said, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. God does not want our gifts when we are not dwelling in unity with our wives or with our brothers. Come to church in fellowship is another way to paraphrase that verse. Don't come into worship mad at one another. Confess your sins and make it right before you walk in the door. Walk in fellowship with your wives. Another aspect of hindrance here is just the inability to pray together when you're sinning against your wife. The force of this suggests that husbands should be praying with their wives regularly, praying for one another and with one another. If you're out of fellowship with one another, this will be hard to do. Regular times of family worship and prayer have the added benefit of keeping us or having us keep short accounts with one another. You can't expect genuine fellowship with the Lord if you're walking out of fellowship with his people, including your own wife. Christian husbands are to live with their wives according to knowledge, mindful of God and seeking to understand their wives. They're to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel, protecting and providing for them, leading them in a loving way. Husbands should show honor to their wives as joint heirs, daughters of the king who will share in the kingdom for all eternity. And husbands are to do this so that their prayers will not be hindered, so that they can walk in fellowship with the Lord. The way that we honor our wives and lovingly lead them is ultimately by loving and submitting to Jesus above all things. Just as a wife is to submit to the Lord first in all things, and that is the ground for her submission to her husband, so the husband must love Christ and honor Christ above all if he's going to love and honor and lead his wife well. If he loves her above all things, she becomes an idol. And this is a recipe for disaster. As one pastor put it, if your central goal in life is to keep your wife happy, then the one thing I can guarantee is that you are not going to make her happy. Love for Jesus is the source of love for our wives. Jesus first, her second. 
If he is going to love her as he ought to and show honor to her as he ought to, then he needs to love and to submit to the Lord above all. The answer to toxic masculinity is not uh, rejecting God's authority or rejecting God's design. The answer is more husbands submitting to the rule of King Jesus, who loved his bride and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.